Hey, Julius, knock knock. Who's there? Cthul. Cthul. Who? Alrighty. Da 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 da. Hi, Albert. Hey, Julius, how's it going? I'm doing pretty good, and you? Great, uh, great. I, I am doing very well. So I see that you're giving up on your day job to start a life as a stand-up comedian? That's right, and I've got my one joke, and I think that's all I need. <laughs> I just need right. to rehearse it. Right. So you're not going to be designing joking board games then? <laughs> no, I, I don't think I would be good at that, actually. How about it be terrible? Maybe solo joking board games. Solo joking board games? <laughs> yeah. Jokes for one player. Uh, Albert... So, Albert, have you played anything interesting lately? Um, I haven't been feeling too well. I've got a sinus infection, so I haven't been doing a lot lately. I did play the Lord of the Rings card game some more, and I finished the Hobbit saga all the way to the end of that, which is fantastic. That was my 202nd play of the game. Woo-hoo. 202 plays of the game. That's yes. impressive. That definitely shows that you've been you know, making sure to track your plays for quite a while. Oh, yeah. I've been doing it for years and years. If, if you go in there, you'll you'll see pretty much every game I've played has been recorded. I know I've missed a few here and there occasionally, but I've done a good job of capturing most of it. That is impressive. <laughs> it's fun. Well, I know one game I've been playing a fair bit has been Stuff Fables. Oh, yeah. How's that going? Because it's probably a daily thing that my daughter says, Hey, do we have time to play Stuff Fables? <laughs> and I say, Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> I mean, yep. It's, it's always hard. We played um, Talisman the other day, an older Games Workshop edition with my son. Because it was game night, and he asked me, please don't go to the game store to play. Stay home so we could play games too. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Can't say no to that. So we played we played Talisman, and that was a lot of fun. Very cute. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually had the opportunity to go talk over on the Every Night is Game Night podcast all about stuff, fables, and mice and mystics. Oh, have you? I haven't heard that yet. Well, it's not released at this point in time, yeah. Albert, but it'll be out by the time our episode drops. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah, and it was fantastic. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was a uh, brief little recording session I met over with them, and we had a good chance to talk about both those games. I don't know if I'm going to come back and do a full review of Stuff Fables on this podcast. No? Okay. Um, mostly because Stuff Fables, in terms of its theme for me, I like the mechanics and I like playing through it as a solo game, but in terms of its theme for me, it feels a little bit kid-ish, and I sort of long for the same type of game, the same very thematic, very story-driven game with a more dramatic type theme. Someone can take an uh, an adult novel and make me live through that in the same type of board game fashion. I would love that. So it's nothing against the mechanics, and the theme is exactly what they were going for. It's just for me, I... I mean, if I, for a game like this, if I wouldn't want to read a novel about the same type of theme, then I wouldn't want to play a game about it. And mm-hmm. I just don't imagine that I would want to read the novel. So I don't imagine I want to play the game. But your daughter loves it. But my daughter loves it. And it's a really good family game. It's very good. And I highly recommend it. It's just the theme is not quite there for me. So that's why I'm probably not going to give it a full recording on here. But I have a lot of really nice things to say about it. Um, and if you want to hear me talk more about it and say a bunch of nice things about it, go and take a listen over on the Every Night is Game Night podcast. Cool. Okay. I will check that out. I'm a subscriber. The um, Do you think... I'm a subscriber. <laughs> do you think Stuff Fables is a more accessible family game than Mice and Mystics? Most definitely. Okay. Uh, because, and I talk about this more over there, but Stuff Fables... The way it works is you pull dice out of a bag and every die has a specific type of action it can use to work, except for the move action, which any dice works for that. But that means that the kids have a dice in their hand, which reminds them of things they can do. So they're limited. Hey, I want to use this die to do that. And there's a thingy that they can do with that die. And it reminds them to do that thing with the die, as opposed to my mystics. I can pick anything. I have all these options. I just have to figure out what I want to do. I feel like having those dice gives them a more restricted and narrowed decision tree for a kid, which means that they can play through the game, in my opinion, more easily. I also think that the story is more involved in stuff fables and mice and mystics. Many of the tiles were just sort of, there's baddies on this tile, get your way through the tile. Whereas in stuff fables, 
every single element from interactions from page every page has multiple story things in it every page develops the story and moves forward on it there's a lot more pages there's a lot more scenarios but there's no pages that's just oh there's baddies beat them it's all strongly thematic which means that it's more engaging for the kids and it would be more engaging for the adults if it had a different theme in my opinion but it's much better in my opinion than my semestics interesting Uh, cool okay well cool well, check it out. And speaking of other podcasts, I've been listening to uh, the Co-op Cast, which is a podcast on cooperative games, um, partially from a solitaire point of view, partially from a cooperative point of view. And I've been enjoying that a lot. That's by the uh, the designers of Salvation Road, which was published by uh, by Van Ryder Games. And they just, it's a it was a bi-weekly show, and they just brought on another show into the same feed, the One Stop Co-op Shop. Um, so there's now an, a show every week in alternating between those two. And they're really good. I highly recommend listening to those. Um, one stop co-op shop so far from what I have heard, sounds like it's going to f- do more solo focusing than pen de- than the other one, than the co-op podcast, but, but they're both really interesting. So some, you know, listeners may want to check those out. Another game that I've had the opportunity to play a bunch has been ex libris. And I mentioned this because I think that renegade games is just continuing to nail it with their games. Whenever I see something by Renegade, I immediately take a look at this point in time because all of their games have been consistently really good, mm-hmm. very strong games. Uh, you know, the ones that we've reviewed recently, we've also talked about how strong they were. Uh, Flatline has been really good, and their other dice games. And Arch- the, the reason why I mention this is because they have another one up on Kickstarter right now Architects of the West Kingdom which is a worker placement game on Kickstarter. And what was really interesting to me about this worker placement game, it's similar to many other worker placement games in that you get resources and use the resources to get points and you buy different points and get different virtues from it, which is essentially like an up and down type currency, like reputation. And you get different workers to help you out with it. What was really interesting to me is that in a normal worker placement game, like it, we, we've had the initial worker placement game, which was, you know, the Agricola. Everyone filled up a spot, and at the end of the round, you clear it off. And then we had worker placements, which sort of made things move fast, like um, a Manhattan Project, that you can either put down on a turn or pick up all of your ones on a turn. So there was no this round thing. So I felt like that was sort of the version two of the worker placement. So here's another variant worker placement. You don't really get to pick up your workers. You start with a whole pile of workers, but the only way that you get to pick them up is if they get arrested and you break them out of jail or <laughs> if they get picked up by a mob or various other things have to happen. But it's not so easy to pick up your workers that you get a whole bunch of them when you start. You get, I think it's 20 workers at the beginning of the game. This is not your game with like quickly three workers. You get 20 workers. But you don't really easily get to pick them up, which was really interesting to me. It's a worker placement, but yeah. <laughs> you can't pick them up easily. Placement neat. On, that, is, that is neat. That is interesting. Right? Mm-hmm. So it's currently on Kickstarter. It has the usual renegade complex of excellent components. They're not having any stretch goals. They already have upgraded everything with some shaped meeples and silver coins. Excellent art. It comes with Solo Automa, which is designed either to play solo or to add an extra player in any of the games with double-sided so you can have the harder version and the easier version. Um, and it's currently on Kickstarter. If you want it, it's about $70 if you want the one with the extra metal coins and about $57 if you want ones without the metal coins. And it's going to be funded April 4th. Nice. Okay. The... What was I going to say? So the worker placements, are there a ton of spaces on the board then, or or are you able to put workers on spaces that already have other workers or something like that? Um, There's a fair amount of spaces on the board, but it's also that when the spaces fill up, so everyone at that place is sort of engaged in illicit activities and gets picked up for arrest. Ah, okay. And so they get over to jail, and so then you have to spend some more workers to go break them out of jail. But that means that there's a worker over the jail spot that you now need to somehow get back out and so it's it's interesting it's interesting mm-hmm. that sounds really cool so that is architects of the west kingdom okay nice. Albert, you should probably say something but we don't have a lot of time so let's get started yeah well we don't have a lot of time so let's get started now okay we get two pandemics to cover today 
Did we mention that already? I don't think we did. I don't think we did. But Albert, surprise! We don't have a lot of time. Let's get started. <laughs> okay, let's do that. So, so first up, our big games today are Pandemic: Reign of Cthulhu and Julius. I'm going to be doing Pandemic: Iberia. And then after that review, we're going to be joined for an interview with the designer of Unbroken, currently on Kickstarter. All right, so we're having a pandemic off, something like that. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. All right, so, so Reign of Cthulhu. This is it's pandemic, right? The the theme here is basically stop the goo, the great old ones, from waking up in a Lovecraftian New England and thus wreaking havoc all over the world. Um, you basically don't want Cthulhu to show up. As a matter of fact, if he does show up, that's one of the things that cause you to lose the game. You know, like Pandemic, you know, you're putting pieces on the board, you're trying to control them so they aren't too much, and you're running around all over the board doing stuff. Um, great, so up in our, on our rubric next is the rules. Um, have you ever played Pandemic? If you have, then you probably know how to play this. It's just about the same. However, there are a few differences. They're, they're not... Huge and sometimes they're subtle and so kind of easy to miss. I kind of wish there was like a sheet that just said, here's the rules if you know Pandemic already. Here's what you need to know that's different. They don't have that, but in the rules, they, they do fortunately mention like notes where, where there's a difference. And, and it'll be like in a sidebar sort of thing. So it's not too hard to find. But what I have found personally is I'm playing and I'm so used to doing things a certain way in Pandemic that I'll do the same thing here and not realizing it's a mistake. Like what? It happened recently, actually, with Pandemic Iberia. I think with the way the the breakouts. I think we were doing the breakouts wrong or something like that. In Pandemic Iberia? Mm-hmm. I think so. You're poaching on my game, man. You're supposed I, to tell well, me about yeah. Pandemic Cthulhu. Yeah, yeah, I know. Well, and this one is the same thing. Here, again, the, the breakouts work a little bit different. But, I mean, that that's my point. The, the rules are familiar enough that it's easy to get into them, but watch out for those subtle differences. Um, cause, because because if you get it wrong, it might make the game really, really easy or really, really hard. Um, theme. I love the theme. I love Lovecraftian games, and this one I think does it really well because you're not fighting the great old ones. You don't. You can't go out and shoot them and, and beat them, which has always felt really unrealistic to me. Here, you're simply trying to keep them from waking up, and if they do wake up, you lose. Um, it's that simple. Um, I think the theme is just very well done. The components are fantastic. They make the theme just shine really nicely. And so moving on the component, the artwork is, is really nice on it. It's very dark. Um, the board is four towns from, from Lovecraft's Mythos. There's uh, Dunwich, there's Arkham, there's Innsmouth, and I, why can't I not remember the fourth one now? The other Lovecraftian town from, from New England, from Miskatonic Valley. Okay. <laughs> Whatever it is. Um, oh, yeah, I know which town it is, and I can't remember the name. Anyway, it's not important. So the board is separated into these four regions, um, and it's pictures of the town, and you see different buildings of the town. And it's a nice symmetric view of the of the town. It just looks really nice, I think. Yeah, it makes it really feel to me like I'm running around in a town and exploring things. Um, the quality of everything is excellent. The dice, is it's a etched dice, the cards are fantastic, and so on and so forth. The only thing I find weird is when you close the gate, what you're trying to do is close the gate to win. You're not trying to cure diseases, you're trying to close the gate so the greater ones cannot come in. And there's one gate in each town. The token to mark that, that you close it is just an X. It's a, little, it's a circle with an X in the middle. And to me that just, it looks so plain compared to everything else. It works fine. There's nothing wrong with it. <laughs> it's just, I find it, I find it a little odd. Um, what the component itself is odd? Yeah, the component itself is odd because it's a it's a circle with an X, just a very plain X, and everything else looks much different. You know, it, it's more artistic. It's there's some art nouveauness to it and everything. The the great old ones are very dark and creepy, and the characters are all painted, and these are just very plain X's. What do you mean the characters are painted? No, um, the what I'm, I'm sorry. What I meant by that is the cards that you get for your character have nice oh. painted pictures of the characters. They look really nice. Everything, you know, tons of attention to detail. Um, and the other side of the counter looks nice. It's got a a, a, a gate because you can. There's a card that'll let you seal the gate so that nobody could come back in, sort of like curing a disease. 
But anyway, it's not really worth quibbling that much about. The other thing this game has is minis. Actual, real, plastic minis, which is different than every other pandemic, basically, right? Um, but very similar to many other Cthulhu-type games. Yeah, but very similar. The, the minis look great. You know, there's one mini for each of your heroes, which is fantastic. There's these really nice, creepy minis for Shoggoths that look like shambling mounds of stuff. Just like a Shoggoth. The the ones that crack me up... Looks like snot in your face. Yes. Yes, exactly. The ones that crack me up are the minis for the cultists. In, in, pandem- in Pandemic Reign of Cthulhu, you have cultists instead of diseases. And you have cultists showing up in the board. Um, these are, are humans, just like your characters, but they're about half the height. And because they're cultists, you know, they're wearing robes and hoods. And every time I see them, I think of uh, Spaceballs. And the, the sand people in Spaceballs where they're marching and singing, ding, 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 ding. Because <laughs> they're small? Because <laughs> they're short. Yeah, they're half the height of the humans. And I, I find that funny. And, I mean, I get why they did it. If, if they were the same size, the board would just get overcrowded. <laughs> I think it's more funny to me that the Shoggoths are, like, the same size as the player characters. Yeah, I guess they're a bit smaller. I mean, and I could buy that a little more than I could buy the little tiny cultists, but... <laughs> Either way, you get these minis. They do not come painted. Um, it would be lovely if I could paint them, but that is never going to be realistic for me, so I enjoy them the way they are. Um, gameplay. Uh, so this game is fun like Pandemic, right? You know, um, same sort of thing. You're moving from space to space, removing the cultists from the board so it doesn't get overcrowded. If you ever get too many cultists, something bad happens. Um, here's where you have one of the differences. Instead of having a breakout... If you get too many cultists, a shogun outbreak or, or not breakout outbreak. Thank you. you the, um, at the beginning, you set up a number of random cards for the great old ones, and you have them face down, so you don't know what they are. When you have a, an outbreak, one of them gets flipped over and revealed, and it's going to have a negative effect that impacts the game. And it could be things like you're no longer allowed to cast spells unless it's on your turn, which a spell is similar to a uh, one of the event cards in Pandemic. Um, which, you know, super useful, but now suddenly you can only do it on your turn. Um, and there's other stuff. Maybe you remove some of the cultists from the game entirely, so now it's easier to lose because there's fewer cultists in the game. Right? And in Pandemic, one of the one of the ways you lose always is if you can no longer place any of the bad stuff. Um, so anyway, so that, that's what happens. That's a little bit different. The, the Shoggoths are cool. That's also very different. Every time you... Um, I cannot believe I don't remember my, my Pandemic terminology. So embarrassing. There should, there should be a test in this sort of you thing. You have a sanity? What are you talking about? Not the sanity. The When you relics. draw the, the pandemic cards. The relics? The, not the relics. You know, you, you you draw from your deck and in the pandemic you get a card that's a, a pandemic. The invocation cards? Yes, invocation. Okay. And so, so you know, when you get that, you have to draw Let's the bottom. Let's start picking random terms for the game until we can figure <laughs> out what Albert is talking about. <laughs> you, you, when you get that, you're going to draw the bottom card of the deck. And place a Shoggoth in that space instead of three cubes like you would do in Pandemic. Shoggoths you need because after that, every turn when you're drawing the location cards to see where you're going to add cultists, there is a chance you're going to move those Shoggoths. And they move slowly towards the gates. They, they shamble their way there. Um, if they reach a gate and, they, and you draw a card that forces them to move again, then they jump into the gate and that wakes up another old one. Bad, bad stuff. Um... As you wake up more old ones, you're going to have to start drawing more location cards each turn, making the game harder. If you get to the last old one and he wakes up, that's always Cthulhu, and you automatically lose the game. So that works a little bit different. But again, very familiar. Um, and I mentioned those goo cards. They're really neat because I like how they kind of add a little twist to the game when they show up. And you don't know what's going to happen. They're never... I would not call them game-changing most of the time, but they, they do add another level of frustration of something you're going to have to deal with differently. So, Aubrey, what do you think about the Sanity Die? The Sanity Die. So that is interesting here whenever you cast a spell. Um, or when you, have you a fight a Shoggoth. Or when you fight a Shoggoth, you roll that die, and it's going to have a little Sanity symbol. You're, each character has health. If you roll a Sanity, you're going to lose one of those health. Um, if you lose all your Sanity, you flip over to your other side, and now you're weakened. You um, you have less movement and your special ability is now reduced. 
Um, so that makes it tough. There's also a possibility that the when you roll the die, you're gonna add, you're gonna get little cultist symbols, and you have to add one or two cultists to the board, which a lot of times is not a big deal, but sometimes is frustrating because maybe there's already two cultists on the board, and now it tells you to add two more. Hurrah! There's a breakout <laughs> outbreak, <laughs> and so so it can be a little bit gamey and frustrating, but for the most part, it's fine. You know, you you just know there's a die that you got to deal with, and there's ways to mitigate it sometimes. Part of the fun. Um, the Shoggoths can be a little frustrating that way. In that sometimes you add the Shoggoth to the board and, oh, look, he's at the gate or one space away from the gate. And then you flip the location cards right after that because it's the end of the turn. And he just jumped in and there's absolutely nothing you could do to stop it. So it's a shame. But, you know, that's how it goes. So I think this game tends to be slightly more chaotic and random than regular Pandemic. But I think the theme is is perfect for the for the game, and, and I think it just works really really well. Um, in terms of solo play, you know, again, like Pandemic, you're gonna find it's much better if you play multiple characters. You could play one; it's gonna be harder. But if you play two or three, then you you get to work off each other a little bit, and that just makes it funner or more fun, whichever. I wasn't gonna mention it. My wife's not in the room. Oh no. The. <laughs> It's funny. The um, so my final thoughts: thumbs up, big thumbs up. I like this a lot. I think it's my favorite pandemic. I think largely because of the theme. I put, and also largely, honestly, because I don't have any expansions for it. Since there are no expansions for it, it's easier if I pull out the base pandemic, the original pandemic. Which expansion am I going to mix in this time? Do I remember <laughs> how that works? There's so many characters to pick from. Oh, you know what? Just put it away and play the other one. <laughs> so, so you like this one because you can't buy stuff for it oh it's so frustrating because i love expansions i love getting expansions for games but now that i have tons of expansions for pandemic i'd rather play pandemic reign of cthulhu because i don't have any nice. go figure right yeah so there you go so i mean that's my my rundown of pandemic reign of cthulhu and if i could just give my final thoughts on it mm-hmm. um for me with pandemic reign of cthulhu the the idea of the relic card, it feels also very similar to Pandemic. It's It feels, and you'll probably hear about something very similar to this when I talk about Pandemic Iberia, but to me, it feels like this one sort of mixes up a lot of Pandemic. It doesn't look like Pandemic on the table because things are in different places, things are moving around, but at its core, it's very much just Pandemic, and there's not a whole lot that's different in this one. The only main differences are just that that sanity mechanic and the fact that there are now Shoggoths that you have to deal with. So you're fighting Shoggoths and you're having to track your sanity to lose. Otherwise, once you really get down to it, it's very, very similar to just your regular Pandemic. And for me, I felt like some of the aspects of regular Pandemic were were better. It was my thoughts. I didn't particularly like having a sanity die that I have to roll to get into. I didn't like the fact that the Shoggoths keep moving around. That was that's annoying. I'm I'm trying to plan it out, and then you're going to run away, and it just it made it harder for me to track what else going on here. The game itself felt like a simpler version of Pandemic, I think, mm-hmm. but it really just I, felt I, like I can, it just really that. felt like Pandemic, and I don't think it particularly distinguishes its, itself a lot. Mm-hmm. And you know, you, you mentioned that, that it's interesting because. You know, I I, w- I was inclined to first say, well, you know, it was the first other pandemic that came out, and so it's it's going to be more similar. You know, as as they spread out and try other things, they're going to be very different. But they, you know, there's Forbidden Desert and Forbidden Island, which again are pretty much the same system and very different. Right. And you also have we're we're not reviewing it today, but you also have Pandemic Rising Tides, which is yeah, similar but very different. I have not so, played that at all. I've only played it once, but. You know, I, I think that it could have been more different. It could have felt more different. And it doesn't really distinguish itself, so it just feels like Pandemic. But it's got minis. But minis, that's true. <laughs> so you're going into the heavy plastic. You're talking about minis, and I'm going back into the old world. I'm talking about Pandemic Iberia with wooden components ranging back in 19th century Spain. We'll take it back a step. In Pandemic oh. Iberia... It, it's it's pandemic it's it's just straight up pandemic actually i don't have to tell you anything about it it's just pandemic it's just older in 19th century 
that's it's pandemic. You're curing older diseases. You're no longer curing the dreaded blue. Yes, you're curing actual <laughs> historical diseases for this one. Yeah, what are the four diseases of this? Is um malaria, yellow fever. Oh, I don't remember the other two now. Some plague. Measles is one, I think. And measles, yeah. Oh, and cholera. There you go. I, I still honestly just call them by their names, by their colors. <laughs> but eh, that's okay. Mm-hmm. That's the old-fashioned way. Yeah, exactly. So that is the gameplay of Pandemic of BR. You're talking about the rules. Kind of repeating something similar to what Albert said about Pandemic Cthulhu. It's got a couple differences. It's got the railroads and it's got the purification tokens. And, I mean, you'll immediately note that those things are there because it's got extra tokens in the box. But other than that, it's really very similar. The outbreak, breakout, whatever, Albert. The outbreak <laughs> uh, is the same. You have to flight because it's 19th century Spain. Uh, you do have access to boats. And it's very, very similar to Pandemic again. And it doesn't have, mm. with yours, it at least had some sort of sidebar to say, hey, this is new. You don't even get that. You have no idea. You're reading through it. You wouldn't even mm. notice it unless you say, oh, wait a second. I know exactly what that is. You wouldn't notice at all. Yep. Now, what, one of the subtle differences in this one that, that we messed up, I think, at first, was um, when you have those outbreaks, you don't get chain reactions in this one. One you get one outbreak and that's it. I think that was right. Uh, is that true? I assume. I think so. Unless no, you can have chain reaction outbreaks. You can't. Okay, then it must be I Cthulhu. I think so because in Cthulhu, when you have an outbreak, it just replaces it with the Shoggoth, so it doesn't go anywhere else. With this one, an outbreak works like it does in Pandemic. That extra cubes go to the adjacent cities. Okay. So you you can get chain reactions with this one. So that's about the rules. Just it just needs a one page summary. Like if they're gonna keep doing these, it seems like they can gonna keep doing these pandemic things. If they're gonna keep doing these pandemic things, just give me like a one page for hey, you played pandemic before? Here's what's different. Why don't they? I don't. So talking mm-hmm. about the theme, uh this is I believe this was a limited edition run, so I don't even know if it's available still. Let me actually check first before I say that. It, my friendly local game store has it. Uh, I taught this game to somebody a few weeks ago, and he ended up buying it. So I'm, I am kind of confused about this limited edition. Was there a limited edition version and not going to go into regular edition, I, I wonder? no I, idea. I, I mean, know. they claimed that it was regular ed- limited edition, but it's still available in bunches of places. So, I mean... I have no idea if they're going to keep reprinting it. I think that as long as it sells, they should probably reprint it, but who knows. But it's designed to be a more educational, or it, it's it's graphically laid out to be a more educational and more historical. So they're using real disease names. They're using real city names. Like They're even careful on the map to point to exactly where the city is. And if you play a regular pandemic, the actual locations of some of the cities are noticeably off because they had to put them that way to make things work for the game with this one like if it's not in exactly the right place there's a little arrow pointing to exactly where it's supposed to be so they're trying to be historical with it and they're also trying to really hit on the old theme and this sort of flows into components they've used for the graphic printing it all looks like it's aged it's been what it's been stained by age they're using wood components there's no plastic in it um they're using a graphic design which helps reinforce the old style it uses classic pattern choices and dark hues and it all looks like a very old spanish style and i very much appreciate the fact that they had all that style put together i think it looks very nice Um, And that probably flows right over into components. The components reinforces the aged theme very nicely. I kind of wish they would have maybe done something different instead of just plain wooden cubes for the diseases. Because that looks like the old pandemic ones, and I just feel like we've advanced a little bit further than that. I don't know. I'm not quite sure how you would have done that, but... Mm -hmm. some Some sort of shape or something for them. I just feel like we're at we're at a design level, even when this one came out, we're at a design level or production level that 
it shouldn't be a square, but it is. But otherwise, all of the all of the components look really nice and really help to reinforce that theme. And in my opinion, the components look better in Pandemic Cthulhu than in regular Pandemic. Talking about the gameplay, I mentioned it briefly when talking about the rules. A new couple of things that we have is that before, with regular Pandemic, you have instant travel. You can just go anywhere with a flight or if you're discarding a card or various other things, but you have flight. Being that it's 19th century Spain, you don't have flight anymore. The only ways to move fast are by using boats in the port cities. Or you can spend actions to take rail tokens and create a railroad, and then you could just travel along the railroad fast. Go from anywhere to anywhere else on the railroad all in one turn. One action, rather, and you just get there. Which means that, unlike in Pandemic, where you start off with the ability to go anywhere fast... With this one, you have to start preparing your infrastructure. You have to start making sure you have rails out. And some games you may decide, hey, I'm not going to spend the action spending out rails. It doesn't bother me. We're just not going to have rails. Or in some other games, you may have, like, there's a character that ties in. His power has to do the rails. And so you say, hey, we're definitely going to go do rails this game. And that's a new, interesting thing to balance with the with the rails. The other new thing that this has is the purification tokens. This is similar to, to some expansion pandemic things. The purification tokens, you can put them in a zone and any cities that touch that zone. So a zone is, you look at the border of all the lines and you put it in between those borders. So anything that touches that zone, the purification token prevents an outbreak and is discarded. It's similar to like the roadblock type things that you can put down. It's, it's one of the later pandemic expansions that you can put it down on a city and when that city would be infected, you instead discard the token. So mm-hmm. that's essentially what it is. It just goes to a whole bunch. But instead of, of affecting a single right. city, yeah, it affects it affects all right. cities. Exactly, in that region. it goes to a whole bunch of cities. Um, the game also comes with two extra challenges. There's the historical diseases challenge and the influx of patient challenges, which are both sort of designed. While well, they're designed to make it more challenging. They're also designed to, again, make it more historical because these these are, the, the situation in the 19th century when this was happening was there was an influx of patients and there was these historical diseases. And that's just the way that was. Um, and that's the gameplay. In terms of my mm-hmm. final thoughts on it, again, it just it feels like I'm playing Pandemic. I'd rather play Pandemic Iberia over regular Pandemic, I think. Unless I'm playing with newer players, really, because then I want to teach about having to build rails and things like that. But I'd rather play Pandemic Iberia over regular Pandemic because I do... I I mean, I definitely like the graphic design more. I like the extra couple things to balance, but it really just feels like Pandemic. I mean, if I'm playing Pandemic, I really want to play Pandemic Legacy because that was that was significantly different than the original pandemic. There's a lot of different stuff going on there. Hmm. And pandemic legacy was a big difference and brought a lot of change and unique to the pandemic system. This one just feels like pandemic. If you have pandemic, you probably don't need to get pandemic Iberia. In my opinion, if you don't have any pandemic, sure you can get, I mean, I would probably recommend pandemic legacy over pandemic Iberia. Um, but yeah, I understand Pandemic Legacy's legacy, and you may not want that. But I would probably recommend Pandemic Iberia over Pandemic and over Pandemic Cthulhu. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think, like you said, they're all really similar. In the end, you go with the theme that just looks most interesting to you, and that's probably good enough. I mean, the one other reason to pick Pandemic or the other ones is if if you want the expansions, right? Because that that can make a difference. I don't think they're going to add expansions to these other ones. Actually, I think in the forums for Pandemic Cthulhu, they've talked about, the, the designers mentioned that he would like to make an expansion. I have no idea how feasible that is, though. I like I like them both. I prefer Cthulhu, but I like them both. I like them all. I mean, yeah, I like them all, but <laughs> but it's just not awesome. That's just really what it is. And then I'm still playing through Pandemic Legacy uh, Season 2. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a whole different story. Oh, are you? oh, I haven't played. I don't know anything about that. I'm not answering any questions for you. 
So that was Two Flavors of Pandemic, George Second, for an interview with the designer of Unbroken, a solid game currently funding on Kickstarter. I'm here with Artem Safarov, the designer of Unbroken, which is coming to Kickstarter when? It's going live March 27th. Ooh, coming up, coming up. So this is what that I've actually seen you posting quite a bit about in the One Player Guild. Sorry, missed that? This is one I've actually oh. seen you talking about a bit on the One Player Guild. I've seen you put a bunch of development into it. Uh, so what's been going on with the development for it? Well, I have been working on it for about two years. And one of those years, it's been actively playtested by the great soul community out there. And I'm glad to hear it has been popping out in the One Player Guild as I was trying to get the community as involved as possible in the development, both in terms of balancing the game and telling me what things work and what things don't. And I think what I've been able to accomplish through that is something that's really been through a lot of testing. So I'm really happy with the result that's coming as the, uh, at the end of this process. Very cool. Yeah, I've definitely been seeing you post a bunch about it, and I've been participating in some of it. So I'm awfully interested to see what the final design is going to be coming out like. But for those of us who aren't familiar with Unbroken, can you tell us a little bit about the game? Absolutely. So Unbroken is a solo game of survival and revenge. It is meant for solo play only, and in that it's inspired by some of the other very few I found uh, solo-only games out there, at least those that are well-known. Uh, obviously, you know, uh, Friday <laughs> comes to mind. Uh, uh, Hostage Negotiator was a big inspiration for me as I think the only other solo-only Kickstarter that I'm aware of. Um, this one is set in the world of dark fantasy and it starts with the most cliche premise that you can think of. That is, a group of adventurers goes down into the dungeon in search of glory and loot except unlike all the other stories they get massacred because they were not ready for it the monster ambushed them and things just ter go terribly from them and the player plays as the sole survivor of this unfortunate ambush so the player comes to wounded lost alone robbed of all their possessions and realizes now that even to make it out alive of this place they will need to you know, patch up their wounds, regain their strength, and hopefully maybe find some scraps to make into weapons so that they can fight off the monsters who are now actively hunting for them in, in these catacombs. And uh, there are four monsters that the player needs to defeat as, uh, as the game goes on. The game itself is a uh, mix of resource management and risk management. It's unlike most dungeon crawlers, does not contain a whole lot of dice. The only die in there is one that randomizes the behavior of monsters in combat. So the game overall is meant to be more tactical and strategic rather than, you know, grab a fistful of dice and uh, chuck them. And the game plays in a tight, tense 20 to 30 minutes. So one of the things that I was trying to do with it is create a game that packs a lot of tension and a lot of decisions that, uh, that matter into a very short time frame to maximize people's ability to play it. What are the mechanics of it? You, you said that it doesn't require a lot of dice. Well, how do you go through the dungeon? What do you do? Well, what happens is, as I mentioned, it's all about the resources that you have. And the most important resource that you have is something called your effort. So your ability to um, harm monsters, your ability to collect resources is measured in effort. And uh, as you go through the, the dungeon, you pick up several cards that um, outline potential encounters that you will have um, on any given step. And through those, you can uh, basically transfer some resources into another. For example, you spend some effort to break apart a deformed tree that you find, and now you have some lumber, and you can then make a, a club from that lumber. Or maybe you find you know, a rusted cage, and then with, uh, with some cunning, you can Tear, tear it apart and make some weapons, some metal weapons out of that. There are several sort of upgrade paths for weapons. So depending on what kind of resources you are able to collect, uh, you are able to find, um, to craft different things. You will also need food to not starve because after every fight with a monster, you need to have some food or 
lose effort from uh, exhaustion and hunger. Um, there is also some treasure that, that you can find that uh, yields pretty limited use within the dungeon, but if you do win, treasure scores you the most points. And then there are a couple of these sort of abstract resources that denote higher level of efforts that you can uh, expend. So the very basic level that basically functions as your hit points is small effort, but also there are there is a medium and large effort resources that denote your ability to pull off truly heroic feats, and those will be needed to swing some of the heavier weapons that you are able to craft later into the game to deal with some of the latest bosses in, in the game. And the trick really is to make sure that the resources that you are collecting are those that address the maximum number of potential obstacles that you can come up against because uh, there are 24 different monsters in this game and they and, and they're divided into four levels so at the end of every level you will battle one of the six monsters and the challenges that they pose in front of you are slightly different so one setup of resources that you could come up with would work really well let's say against a bear which is you know like it has lots of hit points but it's not armored and uh, you can easily trick it with food, for example. But if you have the same resources, you would not do all that well against a goblin who has armor himself and who is crafty and very defensive. So you, you would need different resources. So the balance there is to A, know whether you're going to prepare for the fight blindly and just collect as much resources as possible, or you could also scout ahead, find out what kind of obstacle you're going to be up against, but that will cost you some resources, and then prepare specifically for that challenge. Now, you don't always know what kind of encounters you are going to face along the way, so there is always this management of a little bit of uncertainty. Are you going to be able to get what you want? Is it not going to be possible, and are you going to need to come up with some alternative plans? I pride myself on the fact that the game is not straightforward in that there's only, you know, the face smashing, everyone's favorite approach of dealing with obstacles, <laughs> but rather, you know, um, for most monsters, you can trick them instead of fighting them. And what that does is basically it allows a different way to pay a different setup of resources to, um, to avoid them altogether. Of course, it doesn't give you the reward that beating a monster in combat yields, but it does allow you to progress further into the game, even if, you know, you would not be able to defeat that bear. As I mentioned, you could just, you know, uh, trick him, distract him with some food and sneak past. Of course, that in turn might mean that you're going to be pretty hungry yourself because you don't have any food anymore. So is that trying to set up that you're, you essentially have two strategies that you can take as you're going through the game? Is that the idea? I wouldn't say that there are only two. There are... I would say that so going for trickery is a strategy in itself, so that would be one. Then every upgrade path for a weapon is kind of a strategy in its own. So for example, if you choose to go for more of a, you know, as I mentioned, there's kind of this upgrade tree. So you start with your bare hands, then you can upgrade that into either a knife or a club, depending on, you know, which weapons you, uh, which weapons you, you can, which materials you can find. And from there, so a knife is uh, and a weapon that is able to deal more damage, but it requires more cunning rather than just brute strength. Whereas the club side of the upgrade tree, it can deal higher, um, more reliably deal average amounts of damage, but it requires a lot of brute strength. So there is that kind of a trade-off. And uh, the second upgrades of the weapons further specialize them. You know, So for example, an axe is able to deal just ruinous amounts of damage if you have these really heroic efforts to swing the huge axe. But it doesn't allow you to sort of chip away small amounts of damage. So, you know, if, for example, if you meet a monster with uh, something like six hit points, then you have to waste resources basically because every axe attack inflicts five points of damage so the first one takes off five and then you don't have an easy way to deal one because you know you can just like ever so slightly go think with an axe you have to swing it again so it's this wise use of existing resources and not wasting anything because that's the kind of desperation that i really was trying to convey um this feeling that you know you are 
up against overwhelming odds and you don't have you don't have a lot of time to prepare and you don't have the luxury of making a wrong decision so that's the kind of atmosphere that I was really trying to um, instill in the game and that should come through both through the kinds of decisions that players make and through the art art and visuals of the game so i hate to compare it to other possibly more well-known less well-known games but have you ever played lost expedition or robertson crusoe of course of course both both things are very very familiar with me uh, for for me um i would say they probably like crusoe a little better than lost expedition and uh, admission for that would be that I think I'm a little too dumb for Lost Expedition. <laughs> I always find that there's so much planning required in that game that I find that I spend most of it planning and then just a very short amount of time actually seeing it unfold and it always unfolds terribly for me. <laughs> I actually enjoy that game much more uh, as a multiplayer um, experience because I find that there is less swinginess in the kinds of cards that you can have and that sort of blind interaction because you know you don't know what the other players have in their hands it's more controlled as opposed to just drawing cards blindly from the deck whereas uh cruzo i think is a is a great example that you brought up because cruzo does bring up that no um like you can't have inefficiencies there because you're likely going to starve because of rain or you know you're going to go hunting and come up against you know, a tiger that just wrecks you and your weapon and like probably your palisade too, somehow. Um, so that, I think that would be a good comparison in terms of the atmosphere that I was trying to create. Um, but in one quarter of the time and with a third of complexity. Right. Yeah, Unbroken very much, Unbroken, your game very much reminds me of the atmosphere you have in both of those. Because in both of those, you have a limited amount of resources, and much of your game is based on trying to conserve your resources and spend your resources to get other resources in the most efficient and effective way possible to be able to achieve your overarching objective, whatever objective it is at, the, at that point in time. And it strongly reminds me of those. That's a very good comparison. So I think if, if I was to com contrast it with Lost Expedition, is that it's similar in the, the desperation that you feel, but there is much more instant gratification in seeing your decisions come to fruition, see some sort of an effect from it. I did note when I was looking through your print and play that you had a pretty complicated flowchart for how the whole game is played and the cycle that you run through i think it only seems that way because that flow chart basically summarizes the entire set of rules on that one page and i think any game that tries to do that on one page is doomed to look a little a little <laughs> complex um but what what i what i've heard from players is that it's a, it's a pretty easy game to pick up because there is really there are a couple of just things that you, things that you need to remember just to not miss a couple of steps like you know you don't don't forget that you need to eat after combat um things like that but the core flow of the game is i would go as far as saying is very easy because it's just flip two cards pick what you do lose some time go on and do the same encounter monster hurt monster monster hurts you and then just hope that you have what it takes to uh, kill the monster or trick it. Proceed to next level. Hopefully, at least. Hopefully, yeah, yeah. So you don't see <laughs> a lot of cards in a single game, then? Well, uh, I, 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 think, I think you would see about a half of the encounter deck in, in any given uh, game that you play. But what I have been hearing is the different circumstances under which you have these cards come up make them not feel repetitive because you know some of the cards that sort of the way that you experience them relies heavily on what is it that you really need right now so for example if you know that you're uh, you're going to be up against a vampire and you're desperately looking for some wood to stake it through the heart then you know that when you finally find that uh, maybe like an abandoned old hovel that you can break apart to have some stakes it's going to burn your memory because you're finally going to be like, yes, that's what I was looking for. Whereas another time when you're starving and you see that hobble, you barely paying attention to it and you just kind of discard it. So that kind of varying 
priority that you place on resources, I, th I think, guarantees some novelty to the, the way that you experience these encounters. Sounds good. Are you considering having something to add more cards to it? Are you at all concerned about that? Um, I think the plan right now is that the, in terms of encounters, it's probably not going to be a whole lot more of them because mechanically and sort of based on the, the statistical engine that runs, runs behind the scene, it does the job that it needs to do. Okay. Um, there, there is some repetitive art on it, mostly because, you know, I had to um, be restricted by realistic budgets. But if uh, Kickstarter does really well, then we'll be able to afford some extra art and possibly uh, some of the cars that behave similarly mechanically could have some new art on them. Um, again, just increasing that variety from a storytelling perspective. The way that I do plan to enrich the encounter card pool is mostly through expansions that are going to follow the release of the base game because in those we're most likely going to see new resources uh, enter the game and as soon as you have a new resource you have a set of new encounters that both um, allows the player to obtain the new resource by paying all the existing ones and to spend that new resource to obtain existing ones. So it immediately enriches and provides a whole lot of variety. Speaking of the art, you mentioned that you were putting more in. One of the things that really struck me first about the game that really made me pay attention to it was the art style that you used for it. Uh, who's, who's the artist? So his name is uh, Nikolai Ostertag. He is a, an artist from Germany who's done wonderful work on uh, on the Pathfinder role-playing game. And uh, I believe he also, uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar, but there is a, a German role-playing game called The Dark Eye. Um, some of the... Um, if I don't know if you played, there is this... Um, what is it called? Um, oh, the name escapes me now. There, in, like, back, way back in the 90s, there were these couple of... Um, games called the realms of arcania and then oh um black guards is a game that's recently came out which is a uh, these are all uh, computer games that are based on that system but anyway you know so germans love their uh semi-realistic magic system i guess and uh, <laughs> that that i know that that system is fairly popular in in germany so Back when I was just starting to look for uh, for an illustrator who would convey this kind of grim, mostly hopeless um, world that I was trying to recreate, I contacted several and uh, I actually had a contest where artists would uh, submit uh, a sample of their work based on a description that I would provide. And the work that Nikolai provided was just really right away, this fantastic mix of, you know, ability because... I, I personally, I love the art that we ended up with and uh, just getting that mix of sort of grimy texture, yet on the same, at the same time, capturing this kind of like dark humor of, you know, the, these like smirking giant monsters who are about to relish smashing your skull and um, <laughs> that... Um, do I, do I come out sound, sounding sadistic? I, I'm really no, not. No, you, nice you sound evocative of anything, but... <laughs> I mean, thinking about some of the creatures, I can really feel where you're coming from. The uh, the wyvern, I believe, is someone who you can really appreciate that idea of a monster who knows they're superior and knows they're about to beat you in. Yes. Yeah, and even 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 as I was coming up with these monsters, it was actually a a great opportunity for me to, I guess, pay tribute to some of these monster races and types that. You know, are very familiar, I think, to all of us who enjoy the fantasy genre, especially, you know, through something like the Dungeons and Dragons Monster Manual, but who, through their familiarity, sometimes just kind of get lumped in as, you know, like, ah, just a goblin. And I really had a great time sort of taking each one of those uh, enemies as an individual and thinking of, you know, what kind of, what kind of attacks they would have, what kind of weaknesses, what kind of strengths they would have. And one of the cool things that I'm going to do for the Kickstarter is something that I already started is uh, as we're going to hit certain points in funding I'm going to be creating these little backstories for every enemy in the game <laughs> so that the backers will be able to find out a little more 
you know, why, why does the goblin want to armor himself so much? Or, uh, you know, what, what was the Dark Elf looking for in these caverns? And those who are interested, I think we already have, uh, we already have one of those stories up that describe how the wretched-looking abomination ended up looking like a love child of an octopus in a orc. So definitely going to have some fun with that and look forward to the community's input as well. And are also- you intending also on sharing stories? I mean, we have four adventurers who can go through this, the sneak, the huntress, the sage, and the brawler. I am aware of those from the print and play. I assume those are going to be the same. But do we have any story about why this group came into this dungeon and was entirely unprepared for this dungeon? You know, I always, I always found that that in itself was um, a pretty fun thing to keep abstract and just to to contrast the usual because oftentimes you see this kind of jokey representation of the whole business of venturing into dungeons where you have this kind of cutesy like oh let's go smash some skeletons and collect lots of treasure and then you have those like super cheerful kid-friendly um, adventurers who go down and just like earns earn oodles of cash and experience smashing faces um, so for me when I was coming up with cast of characters here my goal was to make them like this realistic um, representation of what you know inhabitants of a medieval setting who actually you know after some thought would go into this dungeon and you know this brawler for example just because he beat up several people in a tavern fight he decided that you know what he's a fighter he can do it and then he goes down and turns out that you know he's not really a heroic fighter as much as he was thought he was what do you use to make the players feel like they're playing as a wounded hampered defeated player as a defeated character rather than you know the normal person who's just marching into a dungeon i think i use the fact that you need you start off with basically about half your life meter and then if you want to get things that will actually allow you to advance further into the game like materials to craft weapon cunning to collect information or food to not starve you're going to need to get even lower than that. So you could always try to go for you know the safe play and pick cards that allow you to rest and bring yourself up. But that mostly means that even if you do rest up and you're able you're going to be able to fight off some of the monsters who inevitably will um, attack you, you might be better positioned to fight off the earlier monsters because you rested and that's all you did. But once once those bugbears start coming in with their heavy armor, and no matter how much you rest, no matter how full your basic life meter is, it's not going to do you a whole lot of good. So the fact that you need to sacrifice the thing that keeps you alive to guarantee long-term progression to me is what uh, what gets that feeling that, that you described. And I think it's a very important feeling to get. I hope this clicks into place for players. You said that you posted a lot of places you've really tried to engage in your play testers and community in general. What do you think is the most important thing that you've learned or the most important development that you put into the game that you've taken from the community of people that you've shown it to? The biggest, the most significant change that took place after I, um, I took the game to a prototype testing convention here, uh, here in Toronto that uh, where I'm located was Initially, much like I described that, um, you know, the effort in the game comes in three basic forms, small, medium, and large, and they all exist as distinct resources. Initially, the wounds of monsters also existed in this different um, denominations. So you could either kill them by dealing a whole bunch of small wounds or a few medium wounds or one really large wound. And that created a really overcomplicated economy of different uh, weapons being able to deal different types of wounds for different costs and players were confused by that and that was kind of one of the things that I initially was very tied to in this game because I thought that was a genius move and I was very hesitant to let it go but then after after hearing the players at that convention talk about how even this breakdown of effort in itself was novel already and to have this wound 
mechanic be different from what people are used to on top of that was really a real wake-up call for me. So I decided to keep the effort system the way that I envisioned it and bring the, the hit points for monsters to a more traditional kind of mechanic. And it worked so well and immediately made the game so much more streamlined that um, I immediately jumped on that and it really made a, a big change, a uh, big difference in terms of how easy and just how, how well the game flowed. Uh, but I believe that you also won a contest. Is that correct? Uh, well, I, I didn't. I didn't win. That would be uh, that would be bending the truth a little bit. There is there is a uh, a wonderful contest for solo uh, print and play games that is run every year. I invite everyone to check it out on uh, Board Game Geek. Um, and I think Unbroken placed seventh. Um, one of the reasons for that is because it's a very large print and play. And uh, not a whole lot of people were able to commit, I think, to actually cutting it up and taking it for a run. I uh, It was kind of a mistake for me not to have a um, tabletop simulator of the game ready for that. So as a result, I think not a lot of people were able to play it. And as a result, it didn't really, result, it didn't really get that many rankings. And that's not to undercut the validity of the winners because it was up against some excellent, excellent games. Um, the, the Black Sonata is the one that did really well, and I encourage everyone to check that out. Those who enjoy uh, good solo games, I think, will really enjoy it. And now that I mentioned it, um, those who do want to try and broken now, but don't want to uh, cut up a whole bunch of cards, there is a uh, free module for it on Steam for Tabletop Simulator that they can download and take for a spin right now. And do you intend on doing any more entries in the print and play contest in the future? You know, I haven't decided yet. I think for now I am very focused on uh, the, the Unbroken campaign and seeing how that works, what kind of success it gathers, the interest of the community and taking things from there. And uh, I appreciate you coming and talk to me. I think that about covers everything I want to talk about. Do you have any last messages? I really appreciate all the work that uh, you and all the other community members of One Player Guild do to uh, keep this side of the hobby active and well represented. I think in my work on a solo game, I found out that for people who like to play games by themselves, solo gamers are a fantastic community. And uh, I invite everyone to check out Unbroken. It's a game that is short, tense, challenging where outcomes depend on your decisions. And I think it packs a lot of excitement into a very compact playing time. And I thank you very much for the opportunity to speak to you about this. My pleasure. Thanks for listening. We love feedback, so we love hearing from you. You can reach me at Julius at OnePlayerPodcast.com or JLBird on BGG. And Albert can be reached at Albert at OnePlayerPodcast.com or Fractaloon on BGG. Our website is OnePlayerPodcast.com with the number one, and we're also on Twitter at OnePlayerPodcast. The intro music is copyright Angus, can be found at Gemendo.com. The transition music is copyright by Dan Elduce Pancaldi, whose page is at DanPancaldi.com. The One Player Podcast is protected under a Creative Commons share-alike license. Thanks for listening. Welcome to the One Player Podcast, a show on solitaire board games. I'm your host, Albert, and this is episode 146. Hey, Julius, knock knock. Who's there? Cthulhu. <laughs> you didn't say the punchline. Oh my gosh, I've been rehearsing that for, I've been practicing it for, for like a week, and you didn't say the punchline. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Let me try that again. Okay. Hey, Julius, knock knock. Who's there? Cthulhu. Cthulhu. Ah, you got it wrong again. Just Cthulhu. What am I supposed to do? <laughs> you just say Cthulhu. You said Cth- I don't know what. You said Cthulhu. Who? And I said Cth- I said knock knock. Who's there? Cthulhu. And then you said Cthulhu. Who? See that was wrong. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Knock knock. Help.
Knock, knock. Help. Okay, wait, wait. Let's try again. <laughs> That's great. <sighs> now we've got three to try. Three. We got three takes we could use. Any of them are great. I think I may put in that whole thing. <laughs> uh, that works. <laughs> Alrighty, anyway. I thought you were going to get... Um, actually, I thought you were going to say something like, Albert, that's not a knock-knock joke. You're supposed to say something after Cthulhu. And that, but, <laughs> anyway. Mm-hmm.